it's, it's not the cow, it's the how. So you can't, you can't blame the ruminants and you can't blame the goat, the sheep or, or the cow um, for, you know, methane emissions and, and, you know, inappropriate water use and, uh, you know, using up arable land, you know, land that grows grain to get growing things that should have gone to, um, uh, to, to human mouths to go into animal mouths. Um, it's not the animal's fault. It's, it's, it's the system's fault and it's farming's fault that that's started to happen. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. In his excellent book on eating meat, the truth about its production and the ethics of eating it, Matthew Evans explores a myriad of issues about the ways we produce and consume animals and offers far-sighted insights and calls for greater industry transparency and for more robust understanding by omnivores, vegans and vegetarians alike about how our food is produced and what dies in our name so we can all eat. In this episode, the first of two on eating meat, in which I speak with Matthew and Professor Robin Alders, we talk about the benefits and challenges that meat offers to us as omnivores, to the health of our landscapes, biodiversity and food systems. The second episode then digs into some of the joys and benefits of trying to think, produce and eat small and of knowing where your food comes from. The need to re- dramatically reduce food waste and the overconsumption of meat particularly red meat, is really well recognised in healthy and sustainable food agendas. Climate change, untenable land use and land clearing rates and biodiversity loss are all part of the picture. And increasingly, more and more people are moving toward more flexitarian diets, that is, ones that are less meat, more fruit and veg, for economic, health and environmental reasons. So how can we better understand some of the curly issues around meat the implications of the choices we have, and how can we support producers who are leading the way in more sustainable, humane production? It's a real pleasure to be speaking with Robin and Matthew, who each know a lot about animals, food and landscapes as they are both farmers and researchers. Robin is an eminent Australian veterinarian whose research focuses on sustainable food and nutrition security in both Australia and globally. Widely published, her recent publications include Health Before Medicine, Community Resilience in Food Landscapes, and that chapter appears in the book One Health, One Planet. Her affiliations are many. Robin is a Senior Consulting Fellow with the Chatham House Global Health Program, an Honorary Professor with ANU's Development Policy Centre and with Tufts University. And she's also chair of the Kaima Foundation and of the Upper Lachlan branch of the New South Wales Farmers Association. Matthew is a former food critic, now farmer, restaurateur, writer, and co-steward of Fat Pig Farm in beautiful Tasmania. 
You may know of him as the host of the popular SBS TV series, Gourmet Farmer, knowledge from which he has now further researched and shares in his great book on eating meat. Matthew, can I ask you to read from your book to help set the scene and then I'll ask each of you to briefly describe one or two particular problems or issues about what's done in our name so we can eat meat that we all really need to know a bit more about. Over to you, Matthew. Uh, thanks, Anthea. Um, so uh, this is from uh, early on in, in my book. Um, I don't see meat as a commodity. I see it as a privilege, as an indulgence. This, then, is my ode to farming animals and eating animals. I think meat eaters need to confront the reality that something dies in their name and that they should be comfortable with the way that it's done. But I also think that non-meat eaters need to reconcile the fact that more suffering happens outside the farm gate than inside and that more death can be wrought on animals by the growing of grain and vegetables than the production of livestock for meat. Thanks so much, Matthew. It's such a powerful book. Robin, how does that resonate with you? Resonates um, um, intimately, I think. I was born and raised on a farm. Um, I'm the youngest of four children. There was a bit of a gap, so I, I did tend to spend a lot of time with animals <laughs> rather than my older siblings. And uh, and so um, you had to face that. Um, we, we were raised at a time when we uh, killed our own our own meat for home consumption and, and uh, there were times when, yes, you had to absolutely confront that. The one thing was we knew everything about how that animal had been raised. We knew everything about how that animal had been killed and, and its life up to that point. And that sort of sets my my experience apart from, from many others. That's quite similar to mine. That's It's... It's visceral and sort of learnt knowledge, isn't it? Would you like to sort of lead off or suggest perhaps some of your top of mind two to three key issues about how we produce and eat meat and what may do harm to us animals and the environment in the way that we're currently going about that? Uh, it's a really good question that you've asked and my first response is probably going to seem a little odd but I'm not going to talk about the animal. I'm going to talk about us and, and our nutritional physiology. So one of the things that's very interesting is I uh, talk with, with my friends, my colleagues, and uh, particularly people in the medical profession or public health, is that they, they don't, um, we, we don't talk the same language. When I was trained as a veterinarian, we, we were learnt about the different physiologies of different animals and so we sort of understood that depending on how your body's constructed the nutrients you needed and how you received those nutrients varied. I, I don't get that same sense now that that's taken very seriously with people that we don't think about what's inside us and and how our different uh, organs um, and, and the ability for us to either use food or make our own nutrients in some cases. That's not really dis discussed. And I'd love um, during this discussion to have a bit of a chat with Matthew because one of the wonderful quotes on the, on the title page uh, of his books refers to us as carnivores. Um, and clearly we're omnivores. We're not carnivores because we, we eat plants and, uh, and animals. And I think understanding how we're built, how we're constructed, um, can help to influence um, how we choose the food that we eat. The 
other interesting part with the way um, animal source food production happens right now is that most people don't actually think about what happens to the animal and who's making decisions. So animals are going off to, to slaughter uh, in large abattoirs and somebody's making a decision about which part of the animal goes where. Who makes that decision? It's not the consumer. Somebody's making a decision on our behalf. And here in Australia, um, the parts that we're not eating will sometimes go to our pets who now have a similar problem to us in that they're facing problems with obesity. But we're not, we're not making those decisions. That's really interesting. Uh, Matthew, would you like to nominate your very high order two to three issues that you'd most like everyday meat eaters and non-meat eaters to have a greater understanding about? I agree uh, with Robin. It's a great question, great way to kick off. Um, and when you said it, I was glad I wasn't going first. Um, but uh, I think for me that one of the most important is that people understand where food comes from and that it comes from landscapes and that not every landscape is the same just as Robin was saying, with not every body is the same, and, and at certain ages and certain you know different genders, different ages, different people need different things. Every landscape is is individual, and it can't all produce the same things. And so, I think if you want to understand why we eat meat or, or why some people want to eat meat, um, it's good to understand how landscapes work as functioning ecosystems and, and how farms can work as functioning ecosystems. They don't always, sadly, um, uh, oftentimes don't, uh, but they probably need to uh, heading for forwards. Um, and I guess the second uh, thing, oh, look, it's, it's a hard one to pick. Um, uh, for, for me, I guess it comes down to um, there is – as a, as a grower, as, as someone who grows food for a living, and that quote points it out, we, we actually kill more things in our garden and uh, to grow vegetables. We have a market garden, so people think of us as meat producers, but we're not really. We're a market garden. We're market gardens. We just happen to have pigs that we feed the excess to, and we have you know dairy cattle and beef cattle who eat the grass, which which um, dominates the farm. But um, but we kill more things to grow vegetables, and uh, and and when I, I looked into it, there's a lot of animals dying all the time for us to, to grow fruit, to grow grain, to grow all sorts of things. I think people get hung up on the death thing, and I think that's because people are separated from the production of foods. And I, so the two things I would hope that people would try to get their head around in terms of meat eating is landscapes and uh, and and uh, the reality of growing food. So so. Um, that things die uh, all the time. Um, most of the things that die on our farm are actually wildlife because we have a, a fairly big wildlife corridor up the middle. Um, and what I think we should concentrate more on, we get hung up on the death thing because we're separated from it. Only over the last couple of hundred years we've been separated from it. But we get hung up on the death thing because we, I think we get stuck in sort of some kind of uh, uh, childhood um story about old mcdonald's farm and don't realize that death is happening all the time to us but to everything around us and that we get hung up on the death thing because it, it abhors us because we're so separated from it but it happens all the time and what i would like people to focus on is the lives whether it's the lives of the wild animals that that, that live in our landscapes um, the domesticated animals that live in our, uh, our landscapes um you know whether it's insects warm-blooded you know, cute furry animals or you know, lizards and snakes. I think they're the, the understanding of life in a more more um, complex way. Thank you for that. Further issues you'd like to suggest, or just or just headline? 
Um, I, well, I'd like to follow on from what Matthew was saying around uh, landscapes and food. I think it is a really essential point. We know that uh, for our public health nutrition colleagues right now, sort of the flavor of the month is the Mediterranean diet. So that diet evolved in the Mediterranean, and that's a really important point. And, and in fact, if uh, reading across the, the papers on that topic, the Spanish Mediterranean diet is different to the Italian. So, and the uh, many people, well, some people have said that uh, the Australian landscape may have fared better if we'd been colonized by the Spanish because they're used to more dry land agriculture. And I think that's a really important point, this idea of aiming for a Mediterranean diet if you don't live in the Mediterranean. Um, most of our, our local and our, our cuisines that we've come to identify with places, those cuisines evolved because it's what that landscape produced and could produce over centuries. So it is uh, the point that Matthew raised, the importance of where you are and what food grows there is really important. Place and climate specificity of what slow and seasonal means, endemic and introduced species. A standout one for me is around antibiotics for growth and systems production in intensively farmed animals. I also love Matthew's concern for the people who do the farming and the killing and the slaughtering and the butchering and, and how they, and how they can do it, uh, in an environment that is respectful and of them and also of the animals. I just thought that was a really uh, important thing to hold to hand. Michael Pollan's quote, which sort of captures a lot across a whole lot of uh, systems, uh, when chickens get to live like chickens, they taste like chickens too. And um, Australians eat an incredible amount of chicken, don't they, Robin? We sure do these days. It's the highest uh, consumption of any of the, the terrestrial meats. And in terms of taste, Matthew, in your book, and I know uh, the ethical omnivore just out and Robin might have views on this too, uh, chicken production is going through the roof. We're increasingly only eating parts of the chicken. and But do they taste as good as they once did and are they as nutritious as they once were? Matthew? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's the fascinating thing. We've, we've managed to get a chicken that can get from from the egg to the pot in, you know, sort of 35, 40 days, and, um, which is probably about, you know, a bit under a third the time it used to take. So, so, they're, so, they're, so they're super efficient, and, and this is the problem when you get into the discussions about this stuff. You, you can say from an environmental point of view, yes, they, they get to have their fed grain, which is probably not a good thing, but they only take, uh, you know, let's say a third of the grain or it might be a fifth of the grain, I can't remember now, of what they used to take to get to the same size, so they're a really efficient animal. But because they grow so fast and because they're immature, um, uh, they're, they're essentially bland and tender. And the stated aim of the chicken meat industry is to produce something that's bland and tender. And I think, I think as anyone who's had, had a chicken, uh, like the old fashioned sort of chicken or that you can still buy from, from really good butchers or people who have farms can still taste, um, there's a lot you're missing when you get the bland, tender, chicken that's generally available. 620 million uh, chickens, I think, at last count were, were raised for the table in Australia. Um, and, uh, and and the aim of that really, if it's bland and tender, is animal tofu. And I, I for one, and I I'm, I'm make no apologies for my um, desire to eat meat, um, I think it's a real shame that we, we bring into the world 600 plus million lives to create something that tastes like nothing. If you, I think if you're going to create 
life and take a life, um, then valuing that life and giving it um, meaning through uh, gastronomic joy, so making it taste good and making it stretch further because it has more flavour, would be a much better use of those lives if, we, if we're going to um, bring them into this world and then dispatch them. Robin, would you like to comment on the state of nutrition research in the chicken industry? Well, it, it, it's, it's such a complex issue and, and right now I do feel for poultry producers um, they're, they're under pressure. We, we have the uh, avian influenza outbreak in Victoria uh, and that's putting pressure particularly on the, the free-range producers there. But beyond that, um, the producers that are producing in large numbers are producing for a very uh, tight market in Australia. We have a duopoly with our, our supermarket chains. What people are told they should be paying for this food um, these prices are unacceptably low. So it's not just about the farmers. It's not just about the birds. It's about our food system and people thinking about what they need to eat. So um, birds that were, are housed um, internally in sheds will not, if the water is treated, they won't be subject to avian influenza. So that's a plus. When the birds go back onto the ground, you have to deal with uh, internal parasites that, that, people haven't seen for 30 years but that's part of life as Matthew is saying and what people need is to be able to farm in a way that they're going to get um, sufficient income to be able to treat the animal with respect for the time that it's uh, alive. Uh, going back to your uh, um, introductory comments around antibiotics for growth, uh, the use of antibiotics uh, in the poultry industry and, and across the livestock industry in Australia is now highly regulated. But the reason that that was introduced is if you think about it, the diets that we're feeding birds, these very high grain diets, these are not natural for the birds either. This is not a natural diet for them. And it's why we get this distortion uh, in, in the pathogens in the gut of the bird, why we're seeing such high levels of salmonella or of campylobacter is because it's not a natural diet for these, for these birds. So the idea of getting birds back so that they can um, do what birds love to do, which is eat worms and green grass and all of these things, that's, um, I think, quite, uh, quite important. In terms of nutrition, there's very limited studies done looking at nutritional composition of food products in Australia. Our public health nutritionists can't get the money they need to, to regularly update the nutrient composition of our of our foods, but uh, studies from the UK indicate that the modern broiler carcass has more energy than protein in it compared to the broiler of the 1970s. The broiler of the 1970s that we were told were better for us, were less likely to cause heart problems, uh, grew more slowly. They also had a higher proportion of fish meal in their diet, um, and so you had good levels of omega-3 fatty acids. As the pressure on, on, on our ocean stocks have increased, most poultry producers now can't afford fish meal. And so your level of omega-3 fatty acid, the overall diet that these birds are being fed, has changed. And as a result, the, the nutrient profile uh, of what that bird contains has also changed. So we may be getting the protein, but we're missing those key vitamins and minerals that are so important um, to getting a balanced diet and also 
uh, pretty important for the birds to have a, a reasonable life as well. I, I'll stop there. I could chat on. Just, uh, I suppose, almost wrapping up that section, uh, uh, Robin's comments segue very beautifully with um, comments of yours, Matthew, in another podcast that I listened to where you spoke about how growing grains and other things for animals in confinement is a, is a wicked and curly problem and often not great for the environment. Um, and you just posed the questions. Is it good for animals? No. Is it good use of our natural estate? No. Is it good for the environment? No. And is it resource efficient or wasteful? Probably yes. Marries nicely with how when we think about sustainable food, can the animal be an animal? And uh, I think, Matthew, that's a key theme in your book. Would you like to talk about that a little bit, about almost a, a yardstick of good production being whether or not an animal can do its animal thing, express its animalness? Yeah, it's an interesting concept that, you know, uh, um, we, we, we usually frame things around what we want from the animal or what we want from a landscape or what we want from a farm. And uh, it's not always a very helpful thing because we can't actually think like the animal. We can't know what they're feeling and what they're thinking and, uh, and what they want to express. And uh, so I, I, I like to think of uh, uh, the best way to farm an animal and have, have an animal in my care, whether that was something like you know, a, a, a wild animal that I've rescued or, a, or a, a, um, cattle that live on my farm, is what are, what are they trying to do? What, do they, what would they like to do and what would they choose to do? And what, which of those things can I let them do within the farming landscape? So, um, you know, if my animals want to sit under a tree in the sun or sun, sun, then I probably should provide shade, you know, if, and you'll see that around as you travel around Australia, you know, it's, you'll see, you know, a, a, a paddock with one, one tree and all the sheep are sitting under that tree. So it probably means that sheep would like some shade. Um, so, uh, you can sort of guess what the animal wants a bit from, from watching them. And I think it's not a bad starting point because, it's really easy to say, oh, well, um, what a farmer wants is piglets not to be crushed, so let's lock the mother away in a, uh, in a sow stall for, or oh, sorry, in a farrowing crate, a, a, essentially a, a little cage thing that she can't move around in for three or four weeks. Um, uh, so the piglets don't get crushed, but uh, would she choose to go into a, a thing where she couldn't um, you know, turn around, where she can only stand up or lie down, uh, you know, eat and and poo and wee and suckle her young, or would she, if she was given the choice, would she move, want to move around? Um, and she'd probably want to move around. So, so what the farmer wants is less dead piglets. We create this cage, but that doesn't give the pig what she wants. And what the pig wants isn't always what we want. And what we're trying, farming is trying to do is marry the two together. And I really like what Robin was saying, uh, was saying about, you know, it's, it's farmers are just doing what everybody wants. They're, they're not inherently, you know, no one's trying to be most 99.9% of of people in livestock or, uh, or any farming aren't trying to be mean to animals. They're just trying to grow food and make a business doing what, what the customer uh, will pay for and, and wants. And so you can't blame farmers, um, but if you give them enough encouragement, and that might be financial, it might be um, uh, moral and emotional encouragement, um, community support to, to do things that the animals prefer, then farmers will do it because it, because they, they, they're trying to run a, a, a business um, it, giving people something to eat from the ground that they're, um, the farmer is lucky enough to, to be a caretaker of for their lifetime. Yeah, that's, yes, that's right. Um, okay, let's turn now to animals in the landscape and what they, raised well, can do to help restore landscapes, biodiversity, and to help build resilience 
And you've both, you know, nominated landscapes and animals in the landscapes as among your key issues. So, so it's obviously, you know, a key thing to focus on. I might just kick off with um, the ruminant methane issues is a, is a really big one and it's being addressed in many ways. Uh, you see it in CSIRO's seaweed research. Um, I see Farmers for Climate Action have launched a webinar, the Road to Net Zero Livestock Emissions, and there's Soils for Life, Regen Ag, and many other farmers who are onto and into getting more carbon back into the soil. So how does the focus on carbon link with other benefits that animal rearing does and can make to healthy landscapes and communities? I thought starting close to home and in a snapshot, can I ask each of you, how do the animals and the way you raise them on your farms deliver benefits to the places you steward? Robin, would you like to kick off? Um, sure, happy to have a go. So um, I um, am custodian of a, a merino sheep farm. I'm still learning. Uh, I've only had the farm since 2014. And so uh, I'm working hard to... to um, change management practices so that it is more regenerative it's it's a big question and the problem is we don't have all of the science that we need so we're tackling things in a piecemeal way um, I will start with the first question that when we talk about methane emission there's a lot of focus on cattle people don't necessarily look at the range of ruminant animals um, overall Small ruminants tend to emit less methane. They're, they require less water uh, and they're much more hardy. But we don't have that uh, diversity um, and spectrum in our discussion here in Australia. It's a focus on beef or nothing. But I, I think we do need to to get dig down a little a little deeper. Uh, methane has been produced ever since there has been uh, uh, animals, including us. We also produce methane, and um, very important not to, not to forget that. So methane production is one aspect, but what, um, what we know is if you take animals out of rangeland, those rangelands degenerate. Plants evolved with animals in that landscape, they have a symbiotic relationship in helping each other to keep reproducing and, and bringing on the next generation. Working to uh, ensure that animals are grazed appropriately across landscape, there's some lovely work coming out now and we're getting much better. And interestingly, it's farmer groups, livestock producer groups across Australia that are really pushing this themselves, our local land care grazing group. They are working to come up with ways to improve their soil, improve their animal health, and they're doing this without government support because government, the, the number of staff there have been so reduced and so constrained that they've not been able to support farmers. There's some very interesting work coming out of California now that's suggesting that, in fact, perennial pasture species will put more carbon back into the soil than trees. And that's because they actually have such a well-developed root system. Whereas when you think about a tree, what you've got is a lot of your carbon is in the atmosphere. When you have perennial pasture species, most of their, their carbon mass is actually in the root system. And as we watch the terrifying sights of, uh, of uh, 
California burning right now. What they're saying is that another advantage, not only do perennial pasture species put more carbon into the soil, there's less above ground to burn when, when those big fires come through. Now, perennial pasture species have been around for a very long time. This work is only now being discussed. What we need is really, really strong collaboration between farmers, environmentalists and government to monitor in each specific system what's going on. We can't really afford to wait much longer and we need to give people answers and information that makes sense. So it's not just about lots of methane and maybe there are in some production sets, systems too many, too many um, ruminants being produced. But ruminants are central to, to human existence, cattle, sheep, they're goats. We've evolved together over, over the, the centuries and uh, done right. We're, we work together and we can restore environments. And I, I'll, I'll leave it there. Very interesting also in terms of what you were saying about uh, uh, that we need to think about ruminants more broadly than beef and uh, perennial pastures and how there could be value. I just I had this as a point for a latter question, but I'll just raise it now. Um, a lot's been done in our name and a lot's been done in the name of the beef industry, including the introduction of buffalo and gamba grass in South Australia and the Territory which are hideous fire species and they have the underground carbon capture. So that's uh, let's uh, food for thought on uh, introduced grass species for ruminants and, of course, uh, what, what was our rangeland like before hooved animals, but um, so interesting. Matthew, what about you? I know you're interested in soils and uh uh, and a particularity of place. What, how how are your animals adding value to to biodiversity and and your local landscape? Yeah, look, that's really interesting. I was thinking about it today, uh, earlier today, just by chance, and um, I was trying to find some research. There's lots of research on rotational grazing or different management systems of grazing animals. So, so like Robin was saying, you can store carbon, more carbon in soil by running gra grazing animals in certain uh, ways uh, than you can uh, it, maybe in a forest, but certainly you can do it better than, than growing grains or, or cropping. Pretty much every state in Australia says if you've got, if you want to store more carbon in your, in your cropping land, turn it to grass, turn it back into grass, you know. So, so, so for some reason, cattle and ruminants who do this a miracle thing, who can turn grass, something that humans can't digest, into human grade food, into milk or meat and, and some, you know, things like fibre in terms of um, sheep and uh, uh, wool and leather. Um, so, that, so they sort of get demonised, but, um, but, so what we do on our farm is we, we've fenced off areas. We've got rid of the wallabies so we can manage the grazing so we don't overgraze the grass because around here uh, uh, they'll eat all the grass and they have their own areas through the middle of the farm and in the bush blocks um, and then we leave the paddocks for the cattle. But we've changed so many things. I was trying to work out. I can see this, you know, I know that my grass is punching down more carbon into the soil than it used to, but um, uh, is that measurable yet? Not not in the in the two years that we've been able to um to do this um i can see multiple species um you know I've, got, I've suddenly got about 10 more species growing in my paddocks than i had but is that a result of my 
rotational grazing? Is it a result of my fencing out? Is it the result of having more areas for birds to fly uh, to to sit in trees? So as they fly over, they poo and they provide more um, nitrogen to the soil and more phosphorus to the soil. Um, there's so many things that a good land manager does, and uh, it's very hard to pin down which of those is is um, having an impact. But I think what's really important in this discussion about uh, meat or protein or, or how we feed ourselves is most landscapes on earth were, were managed by humans. So, so Aboriginal people managed Australian landscapes for about 60,000 years at current estimates. And so it wasn't some sort of wilderness that wasn't touched by humans. They, they had a way of managing it. And, and modern farming is another way of managing a system. It's not a, a wild native ecosystem, but it's a managed system. And within it, if you've got places for trees and shrubs and, you know, a variety of grasses, and you're actively trying to work out how to you know, store carbon in the in the above ground matter of a tree, which might be you know eighty percent, eighty percent, or whatever its carbon is above ground and twenty percent below, but also in your grasses because seventy percent of the um, uh, of the carbon in a grass is below the ground of its you know of its uh, you know that's actually the grass itself, and it's also feeding all those bugs. So generally, you know, in grasslands you can you can store carbon, but you're doing it through the grasses, but but all those living things that are in in the soil if it's managed properly. Now, when we talk about farming, if you want to compare uh, you know, a, a grazing land to arable land, so where you grow crops, so you, where you grow your carrots and your broccoli and your, um, your wheat and your soybeans, grazing land is a much better way to store carbon in soil. It's a much better way to not release carbon from soil, but it both of them can, can damage environments and both of them can be bad. Uh, one's not inherently good and one inherently evil. They're just different. And I think we need to look at things from the ground up, from the soil's perspective and what the soil wants because the soil is what will will nurture the plants that feed us, whether they feed an animal or they directly feed us if we eat the plant. Um, and, 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 and a living, working ecosystem um, uh, starts underground with the billions and billions and billions of bacteria that live in healthy soil um, and what they can provide to the plants uh, above them, which on which on which everything else relies. Because the plants are the first trophic level, you know, they, they trap the sun's energy and turn it into sugar. Plants are amazing. They, they create sugars out of thin air, out of carbon dioxide and water. They trap the sun's energy and turn it into energy that every other living creature on earth can use. Um, and if we lose sight of that, um, doesn't matter whether you eat meat, don't eat meat, you know, eat dairy, doesn't matter. If you lose sight of that first moment when energy is captured, um, that's when we will fail as a human as a human race in terms of trying to feed the world. Fascinating. So land cover and diversity of plants in our pastures for diversity in the soils. I was also thinking about biodiversity corridors and, and uh, shade trees and uh, mixed use and mixed plantings on farms to enable multiple species and multiple pollinators, not just bees, but the bats and the birds. So I think you've both uh, alluded, you know, we've touched on a lot there. Um, I had a question about uh, much of the beef about beef being about methane and uh, and water. I think we've sort of touched on methane quite well. Certainly a lot of international studies sort of often offer headline statements or sound bites, which may or may not be relevant to our context. I'm just wondering, are there significant environmental impacts between the different ways that beef is uh, raised and finished in Australia? And perhaps water is a good uh, input to think about uh, if you compare pasture-fed and feedlot-fed cattle. 
Robin? Yes, water. It's a, it's this is a really a, a complex issue, and it's part of the problem of uh, I guess the way we've been doing science for the last hundred years, where we break it down to just consumption. So the the sort of simple equation is that the the more quickly uh, an animal is uh, raised and and reaches slaughter weight, the lower the water consumption. So that seems to make sense. However, um, when you start to factor in all the other different issues that have gone with producing that animal, has that been a good use of that water anyway in terms of, you know, if animals are finished off in feedlots, the use of grain that could otherwise have been eaten by people. Um, and a lot of the, I guess, the, the feedlots, it's about getting an animal to a weight that our mega abattoirs um, require to be able to fit their kill lines. So um, it's it's tricky. What we know um, if we are able to, going back to our soil health, if we are able to, to improve the quality of our and health of our soil, water retention also improves. And the more vegetation we have, the greater likelihood we have of having decent precipitation cycles. So it's all um, fairly complex. I, I think that in Australia we absolutely have to be careful about how we manage water and certainly here in my state of New South Wales uh, there's a lot of discussion about whether dam walls should be raised or not. It's a very hot topic in our local area um, where decisions were made to raise a dam wall without talking to anyone. Um, so it's it's I don't have an easy answer for you, and I think the answer is you can't look at water alone. You have to look at what's that end product that's been used, and, and if it is about food, what's the nutrient density of that product uh, and how is that used? I'll leave it there. Yeah, what's the closed-loop big-picture input and output and impact, and is it place-specific? Matthew, you talk about you know, life cycle assessments done overseas, looking at feedlot-fed cattle from America or elsewhere and sort of in a nutshell, it sort of gives a picture that there's, you know, what is it, thousands of litres to produce uh, a cow. But, of course, in your, you know, if it's place-specific, you know, thousands of litres fall on the landscape anyway. Would you like to just give us a little bite on that thinking? <laughs> Yeah, so um, uh, the Water Footprint Network, which sort of analyzes um, products, all sorts of food products, and, and has published um, amounts of water that it takes to produce um, different things. It's come up with a you know, sort of a, a number of. It takes sixteen thousand liters of water to produce a you know, a kilo of beef, and um, those numbers are, are used often to argue against uh, the consumption of beef. That you know, water is precious, and uh, you know, how many showers is that, and all that kind of thing. I've been at I've been at um, you know, on panel discussions with people said, well, that's, oh, you know, I don't know how many showers, you know, that, that is for just one kilo of beef. But it, it's not water that's coming out of your shower necessarily. Now, the one, the numbers they've used are from America where they're fed two, I think it's two tonnes of hay uh, that comes from irrigated pasture. So, like, the difference between something that's in a feedlot that's fed, um, something that's grown on irrigated pasture that then has to be trucked and transported versus an animal that walks around uh, on, of its own accord and and eats grass that has grown with rain that would fall anyway um you can't 
you can't sort of measure that rain and go, oh, my God, you've stolen 50 litres of water from my shower um, because that water was never going to your shower. Your, that water was always going to fall on that piece of land. It might have grown nothing. It might have grown some stagnant grass. It uh, might have had a forest or it might have had, you know, some uh, turnips or whatever growing in it. But it, that water has not been stolen from your shower. So when I worked it out, I think I came to about 600 uh, litres per um, for a kilo of, of beef. But um, – but even then, it's kind of the, – that's water that's in the cycle. That's water that falls as rain on my property that if – for drinking water that we siphon out of the dam, so it was water that fell on the property then, then went into the dam. But then the cow wheeze it back out uh, onto the same land. So, you know, most of the water that they that they consumed is actually back on on the property. Um, so is there a water cost here? No, but but there – but in some systems there is. And as an American, I can't remember the American who's, who's come up with this saying, but it's, it's not the cow, it's the how. So you can't, you can't blame the ruminants and you can't blame the goat, the sheep or, or the cow, um, for, you know, methane emissions and, and, you know, inappropriate water use and, uh, you know, using up arable land, you know, land that grows grain to get growing things that should have gone to, um, uh, to, into human mouths to go into animal mouths. Um, it's not the animal's fault. It's, it's, it's the system's fault and it's farming's fault that that's started to happen. And, uh, and, and no two places are the same. So, um, uh, so, 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 so yes, there's a water use problem, but, but really interesting how, like Robin was saying, I think you can store double the amount of water, uh, in soil if you, if you increase the, uh, the carbon content by about 1%. So you can store masses amounts of water, not in a dam, not in a, a tank. It's water that, that exists in the ground and good, healthy soil is storing that water, um, waiting for the dry period when the, it you know, becomes available to the plant roots because there hasn't been rain. And that's, this is that beautiful synergy between healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy animals, healthy ecosystems. Raising and eating ruminants, cattle, sheep and other, can clearly done well add value to our diets and to the health of local environments, landscapes and economies. And as Matthew says, it's not the cow but the how. That includes the where and the how of how farmers can and do care for place, our biodiversity and so much more. I'd really encourage you to dig into and enjoy learning a whole lot more about pathways to ethical and sustainable meat production and consumption by reading Matthew's really fabulous new book on eating meat, the truth about its production and the ethics of eating it. And that's, of course, available at all good bookstores. Thanks, Matthew and Robin. Great to speak with you today. And to listeners, please join us as we continue this conversation in the next episode. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or... You can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.